Very good evening. Please do be seated. We're continuing today our series looking at the book of Hebrews. We're now in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. It'd be great if you could open your Bibles again to page 1199. Page 1199, Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 19. And also commend to you in the very center of your bulletin, there is an outline and there's some verses there we refer to. Most importantly, Hebrews chapter 10 on page 1199. Let's start with prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, hasn't Hebrews been such a really encouraging book so far? I found it wonderful to come week after week to see the wonderful promises we have in Jesus, his great high priesthood, the eternal inheritance, the forgiveness of sins, being saved to the uttermost. For the original readers, these would have been very important things to hear because it was a time of persecution and suffering, a time when even the strong are in danger of falling away, a time when we need a strong confidence that we are right to keep trusting in Jesus. Hebrews hints that the big temptation for the original readers was to fall back into their previous Jewish religion. But how about for us, who never were Jews? I think our big temptation in general is to fall back to the world. Am I right? To fall back to living for greed and riches, for the lust of the flesh, like the rest of the world. And somehow the world, wherever we look, seems to be trying to tempt us to go back to that kind of sinful life we renounced when we came to Christ. Like the first readers, we're going to need every encouragement we can get if we're going to hold fast to the end. And that is what our text seeks to give us today. And like a game of football, it is a text of two halves. Doesn't mean it's a 90-minute sermon. It is a text of two halves, and we'll look at each half in turn. Come with me to the kickoff, Hebrews 10 and verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, that is to say, because of all we have seen in the past few weeks, do this, but do what? Do this. Three things. First, verse 22, draw near. Therefore, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. That is because we are cleansed, because even our consciences can be cleansed by the blood of Christ. Leave your sins, draw near to God confidently with faith through him. 
draw near. Second, hold fast. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Having come to him, keep firm in him. Don't start thinking, should I go back to sin? Should I stay with Jesus? Should I go back? No, hold fast to him, because every promise we have in Jesus, he will certainly fulfill. He is faithful. Draw near, hold fast, and number three, consider one another. Perhaps it's not what we were expecting. Consider one another. But consider what? Consider first, verse 24, how to stir up one another to love and good works. And consider second, how to encourage one another, verse 25. Why do we want to be doing this? Well, first of all, as it says, because we see the day drawing near. The day when Jesus is coming again is coming soon. But I want us to notice that the text does not say, make sure you all have enough love and good works so that you can be saved. It doesn't say that. So what is the link between love and good works and being saved when the day comes. It's kind of like Prince Harry. Do you know Prince Harry? The guy who got married? Yeah, okay. Do you know what he did after he got engaged? According to the gossip blogs, he went on a diet, shed a good few pounds, got himself nice and trim. But why did he go on a diet? Did he think, if I don't go on a diet, then she will not marry me? Of course he didn't. She's already promised she's going to marry him when they got engaged. Why does he go on a diet? Well, because he loves her. And he wants to be pleasing for her on that day. And in a similar way, we love Jesus. We know that one day Jesus, having died to save us, will come again to bring us to be with him forever. And so we want to please him too when that day comes. We want him to find us full of beautiful things, full of love and good works. And because, kind of like football, the Christian life is a team event, that means we're going to have to spend time stirring each other up to these very things. How are we going to do that? Well, the first thing that means is we're going to have to be meeting together. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Now, I think you can probably sympathize with the first readers who were tempted to skip church meetings. For them, going to church meant risking being exposed as a Christian and subject to all kinds of suffering. At other times in the early church, going to church was so dangerous that they had to hold their meetings in caves and tombs. No wonder Hebrews is urging them not to neglect meeting together. Even today, there are Christians in Malaysia who face similar issues. I hear most often from Christians from Myanmar, run the weekly risk 
are being rounded up by immigration as they leave their churches, papers or not. As one of their leaders said, and I quote, it is now quite normal that Chin Christians are arrested on Sundays after or before church services. But they still keep coming to church because they know how important it is. And I know there are many other in, in Malaysia who run the same risks to meet together. But it's not just them that have trouble, is it? I think that all of us have terrible pressures not to attend church. I know that there are some of us who are cruelly forced to watch football matches at 2 a.m. in the morning until we're just too tired to come to church. Some of us live under the terror of having visitors who want to spend Sunday with us. And sometimes it just happens that sales start on a Sunday. You just can't miss them. I sympathize deeply with all these pressures. Yet, dear brothers and sisters, I have to say that the Scripture says to us the very same thing it said to those first readers. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day draw near. Oh, for those of us who are here, well done, I'm glad you are here. But perhaps you might know someone who is already in the habit of skipping church. If you do, why not make a plan somehow this week to encourage them? Perhaps tell them to think of church a little bit like a football team. Remind them that players that start skipping training are the players that are most likely to grow weak and perhaps even drop out of the squad. Perhaps tell them some of the things we've seen today or ask them to download the podcast and hear for themselves. Because you see, we don't just need them to be here to encourage us. They need to be here to get that vital encouragement they need to stay faithful to the end. Okay, so we've seen that church is important. But what kind of church? What are the goals of our meeting together? Let's apply our passage for a little bit. We've heard, I think, three goals. The first goal is consider one another. We meet one another for one another. Church is absolutely not my private time with God. Church needs to be true community time. When we focus on one another, even as we focus upon Christ, consider one another second goal of our meetings, to aim to stir one another up to love and good works. The sermons need to do this. The Bible readings need to do this. The lyrics of our hymns and the way we sing them needs to do this. Our loving welcomes to one another need to do this. The way we greet each other at the peace needs to do this. In fact, everything we do, we need to be doing it in such a way that people leave our meeting more stirred up to love and good works than they were when they came. Let's make it happen deliberately. Consider one another, stir one another up to love and good works, and then the third goal, encourage one another. And this is particularly encourage one another to keep 
trusting in Christ to the end. Find ways to strengthen each other's faith. Sing the hymns boldly, even if you don't like them or you can't hold a tune. Encourage those around you. Proclaim the creed with an infectious faith. Proclaim Christ's death until he comes again by coming around the Lord's table. Participate in everything with this in your mind that I will strengthen those around me. Talk today to someone you don't know. Sit next week with a newcomer, perhaps. Come early, always trying to stay late. Be there for each other. Share our lives with each other. Bear each other's burdens. Confess our sins to one another. Pray for one another. And exhort those who seem to be falling away so that none of us will fail to obtain the grace of God. I've left on your outline a few questions to take home, three questions. Think about them during the week. Consider what you're going to do next week. Well, that brings us to our half-time whistle and the second related part of our text. And I've titled it on the outline, A Very Strong Warning, because it is a very strong warning. For you see, the goal of encouraging people is not just making the faithful fruitful, it is keeping the faithful faithful. And that's important because verse 26. But if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no long that there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Isn't that scary? This is what it means. If someone is a non-Christian sinner, then they can turn to Christ, they can find forgiveness by his powerful blood, and they will be saved. But if someone is a Christian, and he has decided to reject that powerful blood of Christ to go back to a life of deliberate sin, there is no other place for him to turn. Christ is not coming back to die for him again. He will not be saved. Now, I want us to notice this very carefully. I want us to notice that it is not saying, if you have sinned even once. It is not saying, if you used to be a terrible sinner. It is not saying, if sometimes you slip into sin, although you try not to. It says, if we, are, if we go on sinning deliberately. That is, if we are constantly, currently sinning deliberately. This, for example, is the woman who says in her heart, I know that God says I cannot sleep with my boyfriend, but I'm going to keep on doing it anyway. She was cleansed from sin by the blood of Christ, but has turned deliberately to become a sinner again unless she repents and comes back to that one sacrifice, she will not be saved. For the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. This teaching is found throughout Scripture. I've put some quotes on your outline, but we're only going to read one. The first quote is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and St. Paul writes, 
Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. What do all those things have in common? They are all states of deliberate, ongoing sin. You don't, a man doesn't accidentally become an idolater. A man doesn't accidentally start sleeping with someone to whom he is not married. A man does not accidentally start living a life of stealing. He deliberately plans and chooses sin and despises the blood of Christ. And in so doing, brings the very fires of hell back upon his head. For judgment is certain for those who have left Christ for deliberate sin. As verse 27 puts it, all that is left is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. How could it be otherwise? Even in the Old Testament, the people who despised the law of Moses were stoned to death without mercy. How much more do you expect will happen to the one who despises the much greater blood of Christ? How could it be anything less? Verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Do we see now why it is so very, very important that we keep meeting together and encouraging, it, encouraging each other to hold firm to the end? Consequences of falling away are terrible, aren't they? I'd like us now, spend a moment to look around ourselves. Look around you. Look at one another. Take note of your brothers and sisters in Christ and start considering in your heart ways that you can deliberately be encouraging them to stay trusting in the blood of Christ to the end. This is one of the big reasons that you are here today. Find a way to do it. Now, it may be that there are or there is someone here who is indeed continuing in deliberate sin, perhaps sleeping with someone to whom they're not married or honoring spirits or other gods or is a thief or greedy or any of those deliberate sins. If that is you, then let me encourage you as strongly as I possibly can. Stop. Repent. Come back to the powerful blood. I'm deadly serious.
no matter if it means losing your family and your friends and your funds and your freedom. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world if he forfeits his soul? Come back to the only sacrifice that can save you from falling into the hands of the living God. For if you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment. The last section of our passage, verses 32 to 39, sees the author of Hebrews talking particularly about those original readers. He tells us here, how he knows them, how he knows that in the past they have indeed done this, they have indeed endured in faith and love in times of suffering. And it seems that his writings, they're not because he thinks they really are falling away from Christ, but because he knows that they could really use some firm strength and encouragement against that danger. Verse 35, he says, therefore do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. He goes on to quote from Habakkuk, which is our Old Testament reading, with the same effect. He encourages them, it is those who have faith who live, but those who shrink back who are judged. And he ends positively, confident that they will stay faithful. Verse 39. But we, are not though, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And I'm sorry to say that this is not a verse that we can quite so easily apply straight to ourselves. I would love to say the same. I'm confident that very, very many of us will remain faithful to the end and be saved. But I worry not all of us. It pains me that there are always some amongst us leading lives of deliberate sin who have chosen sin, not Christ. Members of the church who, if they do not repent, will be I pray that today that this text is a major wake-up call for us. Such lives of deliberate sin must not be found amongst even one of us. Let us do all we can to bring them back to the blood of Christ. Don't ignore their sinning. Don't say, it's none of my business. We are the body of Christ. That means it is our business. Find ways to urge them to repent so that the last day, instead of bringing them vengeance and fire, we'll see them save their souls alive. As we close, I just want to remind us of those three things which God gives us here designed to keep us faithful and stop us falling away. The first one was draw near. Come to God through the blood of Christ. Yes, 
we are sinners. Yes, we deserve punishment, but yes, Christ has died to take our sins away. His blood is powerful to cleanse us. So leave those sins behind and draw near with confident faith through him. Two, hold fast that faith. Don't let anyone or anything pull you away from that blood of Christ. Avoid sin at all costs. Hold fast without wavering. And finally, consider one another. Deliberately, sacrificially, find ways to help each other endure faithful and fruitful, especially as we meet together. And all the more as we see the day draw near. That wonderful day when the final whistle will blow and Christ who loved us, who died to save us, will come back to bring us to be with him forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we marvel at the depths of your love and mercy towards us sinners, by which you sent your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to become the perfect sacrifice for our sins, whose death, whose blood cleanses us and is powerful to save. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Pray, Father, that you would so work in our hearts through your word and by your spirit that we should draw near to you through him and his blood with all confidence and faith. We pray that you would help us to hold fast to him no matter what until the day he comes again. Pray, Father, that you would help us to help one another, to stir one another up together as we meet one another, to encourage each other to keep holding fast to Christ. We pray, Father, that if there are indeed those here who have fallen into lives of deliberate sin, that even today you would grant them true repentance, that you would turn them away from sin and back to the blood of Christ, that they with us should rejoice on the day of his coming and enjoy together life everlasting. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.